Hello, and welcome to Gilead. I'm Soren Hanshire, the new communications guy, and I'm so glad you could join us. On April 23rd, Reverend Vince Amlin gave a great sermon, letting us know that despite having the thirst for limitless knowledge, maybe we have everything we need. This is his last sermon before his sabbatical, but no worries, you'll see him again in August. But in the meantime, take a listen to this info dump. We didn't get to pray for this, but Jack, you defended your dissertation, right? God in your love. Will I be able to drink this beer while preaching? Let's try it. I chose to go to the University of Chicago Divinity School because I knew it would be academically rigorous. And I wanted rigor. If I was somehow going to be a minister and try to like lead people to God or explain the Bible or whatever it was that ministers are supposed to do, I was going like drink a beer. <laughs> I was going to need to learn a lot more. I was going to need to learn it all. I'm not going to be able to do this. Biblical criticism, church history, Hebrew, Greek, Latin, theology, ethics, preaching, pastoral care. I needed to master every one of them. And I only had three years to do it in. The day we graduated, my friend Erin invited our whole cohort to a potluck in her backyard, a few blocks from the ceremony. It was this sunny day, and I unzipped my gown as a few of us made our way over there on foot. And I can't actually remember whether someone asked me how I felt in that moment or whether this was all internal. But what I remember was a combination of the beauty of that day and this moment of stepping off the grass onto the sidewalk and the sense that I knew absolutely nothing at all. Or not nothing, but like a completely insignificant amount of things. All the previous three years had accomplished, the thousands of pages I'd read and hundreds I'd written, was to impress upon me just how much there was to master even one of those topics, let alone all of them. The whole curriculum seemed designed to frustrate a completist like me. Like there was this six or seven class series on the history of Christian thought, but in three years they only offered like two of them or something. <laughs> or like the Bible classes, there would be Courses offered for maybe like six books of the Bible in any given year, but half of them you couldn't take unless you were already fluent in Greek or Hebrew, which I had tried to do. I even signed up for an extra semester of Greek than we were required to take over in the classics department with the undergrads. But then my friend that had taken that class with me kept going with it over the summer, and I couldn't. And so by the fall, she was way past me, and I decided I didn't want to learn ancient Greek five days a week with 19-year-olds without her. Plus, she was my ride from the north side down to Hyde Park, all of which is the reason she is now a New Testament professor at Loyola, and I am preaching in a pizza place. <laughs> Just different two paths diverged in a wood one day. It's also the reason I only got to take two Bible classes, so I know way too much about Jonah and the Acts of the Apostles, and I know fuck all about the rest of it. <laughs> but even the classes I did get to take just drove home how much more there was to know. My favorite assignment in those three years was for that class on Acts. 
a 20-page paper that I wrote on a single verb in that book, atenidzein, which you know. <laughs> in a very... <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure how to interpret your, your enthusiasm for it, Charles. <laughs> Which, in a very meta coincidence, means to gaze deeply into. I read and read and thought and wrote about just that one word, all that it contained within it, 20 pages on a single word, and I thought, how many words are in this book? And how many books are in the Bible? And how many books were written about each of those books? And and that was just one of how many subjects I needed to learn. How could I, how could anyone ever know anything really about God? Say anything really about Jesus, let alone follow him. The human brain is thought to be able to store more than one quadrillion bytes of data. That's a million billions. All of that in an incredibly uh, compact package. Scientists are still trying to understand how we do it, but one clue came from this experiment in the 1920s, kind of a disturbing experiment, especially if you like rats. I'm sorry, Erica. <laughs> you guys have a rat, right? No, you guys hate, you have a story about hating a rat. Okay, you're gonna love this experiment. <laughs> Forget it. <laughs> This scientist taught rats to perform a complex series of tasks in order to get a treat. And they wanted to figure out where in the rat's brain that information was stored. Where did the memory of those complicated steps live? So they removed different parts of the rat's brains and they gave them the same test. And what they found was that no matter what part of the brain they removed, the rats were still able to do the task which was confusing because it seemed like the memory didn't live anywhere, or at least anywhere specific. It seemed to live everywhere. Even when only a small part of the brain was left, the information was in it. And the scientists published the findings, but they didn't actually have any kind of model for like how this would work or any analogy of what it could look like until 40 years later when the first holograms were made. Now, if I were a really good minister, this is the place in my info dump sermon where I would just like lay a bunch of incredible facts about holography on you. But I know next to nothing about holography. And the things I do know, I don't really understand. I'm sure my friend Lauren, the New Testament professor, could tell you all about it. But here's what I can tell you. To make a hologram, and don't correct me if I'm wrong, to make a hologram, you point two lasers at an object and you capture the pattern of interference between them on a piece of film. And then when you shine a laser through that film at just the right angle, you see a 3D image of the object. Okay, not really an info dump, more like an info dusting, an info grazing. Like, did you feel that? Was that info? <laughs> I don't think so. Pianissimo. <laughs> Krista, if you saw me take out a pen during your, your story, that's what I was doing. Okay. I was listening very closely. But here's the thing I wanted to tell you about holograms. The cool thing about them, if you think about a photograph and you cut the photograph in half, each half of the photograph shows half of the image. 
But if you take a hologram of the same thing and you cut it in half, each half contains the whole image on it. And if you cut those in half, you have four of that original image. Cut them again and you have eight and on and on. The whole in every part. Which is a phrase actually not from a holographer or a neuroscientist, but a 19th century poet from India, Mirza Ghalib. He wrote, whoever can't see the whole in every part plays at blind man's bluff. A wise person tastes the entire tigress in every sip. Ez introduced us to Julian of Norwich's version in their first sermon this fall. And in one of her mystical visions, God shows Julian a little thing the size of a hazelnut in her palm. And she says, what can this be? And God responds, it is all that is made. All that is made in that incredibly compact package. But Jesus goes even smaller. The world as God imagines it, he says, is like a mustard seed. When sown, it is the smallest seed on earth, which is not true, <laughs> but you know what he's getting at. When sown, it is the smallest of seeds on the earth, but when it grows up, it becomes the greatest of all the shrubs. Yeah, which is funny. I was going to try to keep going. I had written a joke. I took it out. Then Charles laughed anyway. It's kind of like the opposite of a humble brag. It's like a cocky self-effacement. All right, I should have skipped it. it. It becomes the greatest of all shrubs, and it puts forth branches so that the birds can make nests in its shade. All of that in this. A world in a seed, the whole of God's reign in one tiny part. As a kid, I used to think about what one needed to know to enter that world. How much did I need to learn to be saved? What did I have to understand to be okay? And I thought sometimes about my brother, Curtis, whom we had adopted when I was in middle school and he was in his mid-30s. He was born with fetal alcohol syndrome and he understands things at like a seventh grade level. And I thought then that whatever I needed to understand, it must be something that Curtis could understand too. That would only be fair. God couldn't make it more complicated than a seventh grade level. But then I would think there are people not at a seventh grade level. Sixth graders, for instance. <laughs> there are sixth graders and fifth graders and second and preschoolers. There are babies. And babies sometimes die. Whatever I have to understand about life in order to enter that world as God imagines it, whatever I need to know to be okay, it has to be so small so simple that a baby can grasp it. If the realm of God is a just place, it has to be accessible to absolutely anyone. And not just to anyone, but from anywhere at any time. If we need anything at all to be part of that world, 
then whatever we need must be with us in every person, at every moment, in every single breath. When God tells Julian that that hazelnut contains everything in creation, she wonders at it. She says, I marveled that it could last, for I thought it might have crumbled to nothing, it was so small. And the answer immediately comes to her, it lasts and ever shall because God loves it. All things have being through the love of God. The thing that exists in every moment, in every breath, in every one of us is love. The tiny doorway that opens into the entire universe the smallest seed which is enough to shelter in, the light that if you shine it even through the smallest fraction reveals the entire thing, absolutely everything you need to know ever. We have access to so much information. One estimate of the limits of the internet is that it could hold a million exabytes of data. An exabyte is one billion billion bytes. Ask Jack if that's true, I have no idea. But, so the internet could hold one million billion billion bytes, a billion brains worth, which maybe should make us feel smarter or safer or better, but really just makes us anxious or makes at least me anxious. Because it's certain I can never know it all or even any meaningful part of it. I will never master any of it, any topic, as long as I live. So I find myself scrolling and scrolling, trying to find the right parts to save myself. Trying to learn enough to finally be okay, to feel okay. Maybe the next training, the next news story, the next episode, the next post will make me okay, will let me understand. And it doesn't. There's always more, an impossibly large amount. Jesus says it's so much simpler. You don't need to be a neuroscientist or a holographer or a professor of New Testament. You don't have to remember any of your ancient Greek or have taken any of the History of Christian Thought series. You don't need a Masters of Divinity. You don't need to go to the University of Chicago. If you take away anything from this sermon, you don't need to go to the University of Chicago. <laughs> Unfair. Uh, it, can, it can handle it. You don't even have to finish seventh grade or kindergarten. Everything you have ever needed was already yours from the moment of your birth. All you ever had to understand about life, you grasped at your first breath, and you have not lost it. You cannot lose it. As small as it is, it is there in every instant. Anywhere you go, with everyone you meet, just love them. And you will discover in that tiny act, that smallest of seeds you plant, an entire universe opens up beyond anything you will ever understand.